0: This morning, we are going to finish up chapter 19 of John. Uh, so we're going to cover going to cover verses 38 through 42. John uh, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. I'll read these verses for us. <clears throat> After this... Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus. And bound it in stripes of strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Again, Father, we ask that you uh, lead us through the teaching of your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we uh, need understanding many times when we approach your word, and so, Father, we ask that, that you be here with us this morning and, and be our teacher and use your word to change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's uh, as we talked about last week, we covered the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, we did make the point that in John's gospel, he does not offer a lot of detail as some of the other gospels do, and that's okay, that's John. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote this book, uh, this, this uh, Gospel of John. Uh, but when we look at John's Gospel, it's easy, to, even, even with the shorter, uh, I guess, version of details that John uh, includes, it's easy to understand the significance of the Lord's crucifixion, right? Uh, and his death. It's, it's easy for us. We know, uh, we talked about it a lot last week, uh, but what about his burial? Is the the burial of Jesus. What about that? Is that? Uh, what about the significance of that? Well, as we know, because uh, we refer to the Apostles' Creed several times in our study, uh, the Apostles' Creed reads this way, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, one reason that is recorded for us this way, and we say it every Sunday, is that the burial of Jesus did mark a significant turning point in Jesus' mission. As we look at the life of Jesus, if you look at it overall, um, we, can, we have seen, and, and we're getting close to the end of our study in John, right? We have seen the, progress, the, the progression from humiliation to exaltation. As you look at, the, it, it, at, the, at, the, at his whole life, as we, can, as we think about the cross and the resurrection, it's easy to see the contrast, isn't it? It's very easy to see a contrast between his humiliation on the cross and his exaltation at the resurrection. But it is easy for us to overlook the fact that the transition okay, from when the life of Jesus transitioned from humiliation to exaltation didn't begin at the resurrection. It began here at the burial. This transition, okay, from humiliation to exaltation. It began here at his burial. As we we begin to look at this, let's review a, a critical passage from the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. And these are the words of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Though we are familiar with this portion of uh, Isaiah's uh, work in the Old Testament. This is the prophecy, right, of the suffering servant of Israel. Now did you, did you, as you, as I was reading that, did you catch the change of tone there? Did you, did you catch that? Every, every, everything that Isaiah is written again. It's, it's, it's a, it's a prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy. Everything is negative, okay, until Isaiah mentions what seems to be a minor detail. He he says that the servant. And made his bed with the rich in his death because why? Because he had done no evil thing. So, this, um, this is a picture, isn't it? This is a picture of the circumstances of the life and the death of Jesus. And just as Isaiah prophesied, there was a remarkable change in the circumstances between his death and his burial. So we see this, again, we see this, this transition, this, this change in circumstance, and it did happen between the Beth, his death and his burial. Now, this, as we look at the circumstances of Jesus' burial, they were very different than uh, that of most who were executed uh, prisoners of Rome. When, when a Jew was executed, the family did have the right to request uh, the body, the unclaimed bodies. Um, the, excuse me, the body of the family member. They had a right to request that from the Jews, and the Jews would often uh, grant that. Unclaimed bodies of crucified prisoners. Those who were unclaimed were often thrown into the garbage dump outside of the city. Now, this dump, if you know, if you uh, was, was called Gehenna. Uh, that's where the trash was burned, uh, outside of the city, so all the the city's trash went out there. It was on fire, and the fires went on day and night. It was always burning. In fact, uh, Gehenna became a metaphor for hell. If you've probably not heard that, uh, where the and and it's a metaphor because of the fact of hell, right? We know about the flames of hell; they they never go out, just like the fires at Gehenna seemingly never went out. They were always burning. However when someone was executed for sedition, which is what Jesus is on the cross for, right? He's a a challenge to their authority. Uh, The body was often left on the cross for days. And if you can imagine what would happen to a dead body on the cross for days. It's the same thing that happens to a dead deer on the side of the road. Vultures would come and just finish the body off while on the cross for everybody to see. So it's very possible that since Jesus was executed for this rape, for the challenge to the authority, right? It's, that's, that's, why he, that's why they put him on the cross. It's very possible his body might have been left there had nobody acted. But in God's providence, the body of Jesus was spared this indignity. So John writes here in verse 38, he says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and he took the body of Jesus. Now Joseph, what we know about Joseph is he was a man of significant wealth and status and most likely was probably a member of the Sanhedrin himself. And as John tells us, he was a believer in Christ. But what? He was quiet about it. He was not vocal about it. You remember John told us earlier in John 12 uh, that even among the rulers, this is John 12, 42, even among the rulers, he's talking about the religious rulers right of the day, even among them, many believed in him, referring to Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So Joseph was apparently in this group. However, uh, we see here that his his faith he, he was he was in secret, he didn't want to be of the synagogue but or the um of the the sanhedrin, but you can see here at this point, given the events that had just happened, his faith in Jesus compelled him to come out of the shadows, if you want to say, it compelled him to take action uh, to spare Jesus' bodies from anything else, any more indignities that may happen to Jesus' body. Even even though he was not family, remember I said that, so all the Jews could request the body a lot of times, and the Romans would grant that. Even though uh, Joseph was not family of Jesus, he went to Pilate and he did request the body. Now, why did Pilate grant this request? Well, we really um, can't be sure. It could be that he wanted to uh, infuriate the Jews even more, right? Right. Um, Maybe. It may be from a sense of guilt. Remember we talked about that last week, about Pilate being afraid of what was going on. We don't really know. We don't know for sure, right? But we know that Pilate granted the request. Then John notes in verse 39, he says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Now remember we met Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Now Nicodemus is back, and uh, he has come to help Joseph prepare uh, Jesus' body for, for burial. And it also seems that Nicodemus was among those of the religious group who, who was um, a secret follower of Jesus. And now, very much like his friend Joseph here, he's willing to take a stand. Now it's time uh, to, to not be in the shadows and to take a stand. Remember, we first met him, Nicodemus came by night to meet, to talk with Jesus. Now, the Jews, as a practice, did not embalm their dead as the Egyptians did. But they did wrap the bodies in a shroud of linen. And then they would cover uh, the linen with oils. Okay, They would anoint the, the linen with oils. And it It was really simply, okay, that the oils were simply to cover the smell of a decomposing body. That was the reason, okay, that they would do that since they didn't embalm bodies. So John continues here in verse 4 he says, Then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of the Jews to bury. In 41 and 42, he says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And so there, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Well, they, they needed to move fast. It was approaching what uh, the what, beginning of the Sabbath on a Friday would have been around 6 o'clock or at sunset, right? And it was approaching that time. Uh, so they needed to move fast. because the high sabbath was at hand of course in in god's providence right because he has ordained all these things to happen there was a a new and an unused tomb that was in a garden it was very close the the other gospels tell us that the tomb was owned by who joseph himself that he actually owned the tomb right it's, um, it's highly unlikely that uh, Jesus' family could have provided for such a burial themselves if it had been left to them to do it. So we see here now uh, this beginning of the transition from Jesus' humiliation to his exaltation. Now, where did Jesus go? From the point when he said, it is finished and he gave up his spirit until he was resurrected. There is a great debate about this. Okay, a great debate. We, we know where his body was, Place in the tomb, right? But where was his soul? And we're going to spend the rest of our time together talking about this. Um, there's uh, a lot of things to, to look at this. And um, there's a lot of different ways you can look at this. I've also asked Matthew. I hope he, he's able to come back. Uh, Matthew and I talked a lot about this too this week. And uh, I hope that he'll be able to share. Maybe when we get done, share a clarification for us. Because we're going to present what RC spends some time going is presenting some, some different viewpoints. Okay, and talking about a lot of things and what might have happened. So I'm hoping that at the end, I hope Matthew can join us back, that he could offer just kind of some, some clarification at the end for us. So so so, we, I hope this made sense. This 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 transition, right? This was a, a significant burial. This was a expensive burial. Okay, again, we talked about what would have normally happened, right? To, in this case, but we see that again, God in His providence, He spared Jesus' body from doing this. So again, to the question, we know where Jesus' body was. It's in the tomb. But where was his soul? Now, there are many who believe that G- during this time, between uh, when he died, when, he, when, his, when his bodily died, and when he was raised, that Jesus visited hell. In fact, uh, what is, how does the Apostles' Creed read? Right, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, semicolon, he descended into hell. One thing to note about uh, the Apostles' Creed, of course, it's not Scripture. Okay, it's not, it's not inspired. Okay, it's not, uh, but it is written by man, uh, un- not under the inspiration. It's not in the Bible. However, it is important to note that the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed do not include that phrase, "descended into hell." It it did not appear until the middle of the third century, is when this first happened. So that. And and Dr. Sproul made a point that phrase itself is textually questionable. Okay. We never said it in church. Yeah, and there's. I think the ARP doesn't say it. I think is what uh, Matthew was telling me. Um. So the phrase itself is textually questionable. Now, why if if why would Jesus have gone to hell during that time? Well, this is one th- one theory, is that in order to fully pay for our sins, he had to experience some time in hell. So the belief is that he went there as a part of the atoning work that he accomplishes on the cross for his people. Others, others such as the Roman Catholic Church, believe that he went there to release captives who have been held there from the Old Testament days. So he he, he would he would not go there in, in their theory, he wasn't there to be punished. He was there uh, to continue his work of redemption. Now the the text most frequently used to support that view is first Peter 3, 18 through 20. And I'll read these for us. She says For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the just and the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now, here, in Peter's letter, he refers to a mission of Jesus to the spirits in prison. Now, many commentators would understand that the spirits in prison uh, are Old Testament saints who were still being held in a, in a waiting period for the day of rescue. This, this, this prison, again, is mentioned, is assumed to be held. Now, Calvin had, John Calvin had a different view, and that's one thing that you'll find when you research this topic or this question, you'll find many different views, okay? John Calvin had a different view. He believed that Jesus did descend into hell, and he agreed that Christians should recite the articles of the Apostles' Creed, but he wanted the wording to be changed a little bit as far as the order. He wanted it, he would like it to read, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, descended into hell, comma, dead and buried. It was Calvin's view that Jesus' experience of hell happened while he was on the cross. It It was, in his view, a part of the atonement. So the question of where he went raises the issue of the relationship between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ. We believe this, right? There's a term for it, right? It's called the hypostatic union. We believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Can, Can we explain that? No. We cannot explain that, can we? But we believe it's true because the scriptures tell us that it's true. Now, when we look at the, the natures of Christ, on, while Jesus was on the cross, the divine nature did not die. Why? Because it cannot die, can it? It cannot die. If, if God had been dead for three days, then that would have been the end of all things. Right? If God dies, everything ceases to exist. Everything that is here. Of course, God did not stop being God on the cross. However, Jesus suffered and died in his human nature. His divine nature did not die, because it cannot die. So what was the relationship between the two natures during those three days? The The union, that we refer to it as the hypostatic union, that's the, that's the, the, the phrase or the term that we use, the union of the two natures still existed, but the living soul of Christ was absent from his body. So where was it? Well, we believe that it was in heaven. And how do we know that? Well, we know because of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Beside him. It is, it is, and, and Dr. Sproul offered this, it's theoretically possible, right, that Jesus died, that he visited hell, and then it went on to heaven all in the same day. Is that possible? Yes. He says, but his own words, that scenario, if we were to work that out, really requires us to torture the text. And that's not safe. Okay, that's really not safe to start torturing Scripture, okay? Even, even that statement, okay, what we just read about, or we mentioned about Jesus' words to the, to, to the thief isn't accepted by everyone, not, not the fact that he didn't say it. So, some will point out that in the words of Jesus, as recorded in the other Gospels, that there is no punctuation in the original Greek. And so Jesus may have said this, I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now you see the difference there. It's a little different, right? It's 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 Jesus saying, "I'm telling you today, you will be with me in paradise." Now that doesn't say he's not saying, "I'm telling you that you will be with me in paradise today." Do you see the difference, right? And so some would make that argument. However, this is Dr. Sproul's word, given, given that question, right? Dr. Sproul said, However, I cannot believe that the Son of God, who was grasping for air in his dying moments, would have added any unnecessary verbiage in his words to the robber. He says, I think it's very clear that Jesus said, this is Dr. Sproul's words, I think it's very clear what Jesus said. He made a promise to this man. This very day you will be with me in paradise. And he wasn't going to hell but to paradise. We also know that at the end of the suffering on the cross, what did Jesus say? We mentioned it last week. I think we did anyway. Uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We found that in Luke 23. So when Jesus offered up his spirit, we have every reason to believe that the moment Jesus died, when he said those words, that his divine nature remains united to his soul, which was in heaven. And to his body, uh, which was in the tomb. His body was in the tomb waiting to be returned uh, to, uh, at the resurrection. So what do we do with the text in First Peter about this preaching to the spirits in prison? And Dr. Sproul, uh, his short answer was three words, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He says if we, if we looked at, uh, at ten different commentators or commentators, we might get ten different opinions about what that verse in Peter means. Yes. yes, sir. Can you not preach to someone without actually being in the room I'm just a thought. If you go to a literal prison and you're a prison minister, you can be at the prison and they can hear you through the bar. I'm just throwing that out there. I I'm i do not know but I'm just just thought. good point. Good something to think about. <clears throat> So Dr. Spruill said, what do we do with this text in First Peter? Well, so so he's, he's kind of answered this question, right? What is, what is Dr. Sproul's version? What is his answer? He says his, his divine, it, it was, was separated. His divine nature, his soul was in heaven. His body, his dead body, was a human body, right? It died. It was in the tomb. So what do we do with this text in 1 Peter? Again, we have 10, ten different commentaries, 10 different opinions. Dr. Sproul said, I can tell you what I think it means, but I cannot state for sure what Peter had in mind. Peter writes that writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's just, um, chapter 3. Now he says, if we apply the basic principle of biblical interpretation, and what is that? Everybody should know that, right? Scripture is its own interpreter, right? You interpret Scripture by Scripture. You don't use anything else to interpret Scripture, okay? It's its own interpreter. So if we see, he says, if we apply the basic principle of biblical interpretation, which is to see, in this case, we would want to see how these phrases are used elsewhere in Scripture, right? We would go to Scripture. We find the phrase, made alive in the Spirit, uh, when we look at that, we find that this is most certainly refers to his resurrection. When Peter uses this t- made alive in the spirit, according to Dr. Sproul, we can find that it most that phrase most certainly refers to his resurrection. Again, clearly Jesus' body died, and then it was made alive again, wasn't it? By the spirit, the same spirit, right? It made his body alive again. And it says, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison by the same spirit. Now notice, uh, when Peter speaks of Jesus' preaching to the spirit, he says it, it says after he speaks about the resurrection. So he, he's kind of listing out in, in sequence. We can, we can see an order there in where, where Peter, the order that Peter mentions, he refers to the death of Jesus. He refers to resurrection. And then he refers to the preaching of The spirits in prison. So, if you look at it from that perspective, you would say, "Well, the preaching happened after the resurrection." But we have to be careful. We have to be careful because what Peter doesn't say, he doesn't he doesn't attach a timeline to it. He just offers you a sequence of events. He doesn't say like, "After he was raised by the Spirit, then he went and preached." You notice. He didn't, he didn't add the language in there to really be clear on a sequence of events. He just offered. He, he, he simply was saying that the spirit was active in both cases. Right? This is by the spirit he was raised and in the spirit he went and preached. <clears throat> now, the assumption that most would bring uh, to the term spirits. Who is he talking about? Right? Who, who are The Spirits. The assumption that most bring to this is that he is referring to dead people and the prison itself is hell. That's the interpretation that most people would bring. R.C. says, well, that that may have been what Peter had in mind here. He says, however, on the other hand, the term spirit is used in biblical language uh, many times for living people. Now, this is interesting. When I read this, uh, and I read, and he cites Genesis 2-7. He says, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's King James Version. It's interesting, when I read that, I can't talk to either of these men. I can't talk to Dr. Sproul, and I can't talk to John Calvin, right? Uh, but Calvin basically said the opposite of that, that the Scriptures never refer to dead people as soul, as uh, excuse me, as live people, as spirits. Now, I haven't done all the research. I'm I'm quoting to you what two men said that seemingly that contradict each other is what the way I read it. But we're going, we're studying Dr. Sproul's lesson, right? So that's what we're going with. Y- using this, uh the 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 term spirit, uh, applying it to living people. He again, I quoted uh he cited uh Genesis 2-7, which I just read for you. It says, you know, and we use a similar language today, don't we? He says, uh, you know, we could ask each other, how many, how many people were at church last night? And you may answer, well, there wasn't a soul there. And that's true, right? We, we say that sometimes, right? And, you know, there's a piece of, of truth there because uh, as I've shared this quote with you before uh, from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. Now think about that, okay? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Now doesn't that, that to me provides some clarity, right? On who are you? Your body is a piece of you, right? It's an important piece of you. But your soul is who you are, right? So there's that example, right? So so his point was that uh, and of course, when, when we were to answer that question, right, there, there wasn't a soul there, we're not saying there were no ghosts there. we were referring to living people. There were no living people there, right? So he's using that as an example. So his point, so it, uh, Dr. Sproul's point was so that the fact that Peter referred to them as spirits doesn't necessarily mean dead people, deceased spirits. Again, that's his opinion. I've already told you Calvin kind of had an opposite take on that. So what about the prison? Well, again, Dr. Sproul said it is possible that Peter was referring to hell. On the other hand, again, using Scripture to interpret itself, when um, the Old Testament was written, when when Isaiah was writing, when Isaiah was called as a prophet and he was given his mission, uh, and that time Israel found herself in the condition of being in the bondage of sin. Okay, remember? And why do we say that? Well, it was, we, can, we can read this in Isaiah 61. It was the mission of the Messiah, as Isaiah prophesied it, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So when you think about, when you look at some Old Testament language, um, Thotter's Proverbs said, well, Peter may be reminding us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead accomplished and accompanied his earthly ministry, right, of releasing the captives from prison, which was now what? The house of sin, the bondage of sin. So that's one way to look at it. Now I'm going to throw you another one, not to try to confuse you. That's why I'm glad that Matthew's back because I'm going to ask him to give us some, his version of some clarification here in a minute. Macarthur, if you study John, if any of you have a Macarthur Study Bible, his notes on the verses in 1 Peter, he says this. This is straight from his commentary, from his uh, Study Bible. Between Christ's death and resurrection, okay, so between the death and the resurrection, His living Spirit went to the demon spirits bound in the abyss and proclaimed that, in spite of His death, He had triumphed over them who are the spirits in prison, according to MacArthur's study Bible. This refers to fallen angels, demons. Demons who were permanently bound because of the heinous wickedness. The demons who were, uh, and he refers to uh, before the days of Noah, when things had gotten so bad that God had actually taken some of these demons because it was such heinous behavior and bound them and allowed them not to continue into this world. The demons who were not so bound, right? Because they're still present, right? He didn't bind all the demons. We, they're still demons we know are fallen angels, right? Um, the demons who were not so bound resist such a sentence. But he says, in the, in the end, they will all be sent to the eternal lake of fire. So see, you have another view, right? Of what was going on here. Now, did what... Um, Matthew did send me, and I was, because I was talking to him during the week, he sent me a really good video uh, from, that was produced by RTS, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, answered this question What do we mean when we say descended into hell? Kind of how we got this thing started, right? And it was very, it's, it's, a good, um, it's a good synopsis. It mentions some of the things we've already mentioned in our study today. It sums it up, and they refer to the Westminster Larger Catechism Question 50. And the question reads this wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer is this Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried, and the continuing and continuing in the state of the dead, and under the power of death until the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. What is it? What does that mean? what does it say? That his body, his physical body was in the state of death for three days. And that's really what, that's what we're saying when we say descended into hell. Now as a way to kind of try to attempt to sum this up before I give uh, Matthew a few minutes to, um, Dr. Sproul said this, says, as I said, he said, I'm not certain as to what Peter was saying. But I'm confident about what John is telling us in this gospel, right? What is John telling us in these verses? I'm going to quote, I'm going to read Dr. Spoy. He says, John wants us to see that God was not willing to allow the humiliation of his son to last one second longer than was necessary for him to pay our debt. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. Who's who's in charge? Who's in control? Well, this whole situation, God Himself, right? He this none of this is happening by accident. Every step is planned out, and and I love those words from Doctor Sproul. He says, "You see, God the Father, and, and 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 this is a Trinitarian work. I'm not saying it's not, but He's saying He was not willing to allow the humiliation because this got because the Son, right, was humiliated for your sake and for my sake and for all of the elect. He was Humiliated. But he says he was not going to allow, that. God was not going to allow that to last one second longer than was necessary to pay our debt. His, His body, as we have read, was not treated as normally probably would have been treated. It was treated tenderly. His body was given an honorable burial in a tomb that had never been used before. So we see that our Lord, in his burial, he was exalted in his burial. And that was, my friends, my dear brothers and sisters, that was simply a hint of what was to come, wasn't it? The resurrection. What does Acts 2, 24 says? It was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. Absolutely impossible. Amen. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us, Father, and help us uh, learn what you want us to learn, Father, through your word. We pray that you will um, continue to, your truth will be clear to us, Father, and we just, we thank you for your word. We thank you for times like this where we can study your word, and Father, now as we, as we leave this time, we pray for our hearts as we go into our worship service, Father, breathe with our uh, pastor as he uh, leads us, and we pray that you will uh, continue to use him uh, as your mouthpiece here in our church in Lebanon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.